live from Chicago, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by a panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Democrat Peter Hanna, Democrat progressive Georgia Logothides, Kristen McQuarrie of the Chicago Tribune Editorial Board, and economist Mike Miller from DePaul University. Our program tonight coming to you from our home base at the Museum of Broadcast Communications, where our toll-free lines are open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. If you'd like to email me a comment, it's Bruce Dumont at museum.tv. You want to tweet me a comment during the show, which is my preferred way of communication, at least if you're going to do it by text, it's at DUMO, at D-U-M-O. Of course, you can join us also live on beyondthebeltway.com. If you missed the show, you can always find it there and of course we are live on Facebook and uh, that's the Bruce Dumont Beyond the Beltway Facebook page and also we are live on YouTube so people around the world perhaps are listening to us right now. I want to begin we've, we've got another jam-packed two hours for you we've got great guests. Georgia Logothides you're sort of our card-carrying uh, progressive with us this evening you're with the Daily Cost you've been a contributor for many many years um, is there anything that Representative Omar from Minnesota has said that you think is anti-Semitic? I think the suggestion of dual loyalty was anti-Semitic, whether she intended it to be so or not. I know there, there were many people in the Jewish American community that were deeply hurt about it. And it's one of those things that unless you kind of are aware of it, perhaps it was unintentional. I'm not going to try and impugn motives one way or another. But suffice it to say, it was exceptionally hurtful, and I'm glad to see that the House took um, an action to obviously denounce that anti-Semitism as well as other types of isms, whether it be um, anti-Islam, anti-LGBT, any type of ism. And I think that that's what we need more of in this country, more people standing up and saying that this type of um, you know, comments about other people are just not tolerated. Peter, Hannah, you're a rather progressive this evening. Uh, answer to the same question, and... Uh, your background, you came to the United States from Egypt, so give us your assessment of, of what she said and maybe what she was trying to accomplish. Yeah, no, I agree completely with Georgia. I think um, what she said fits into a lot of anti-Semitic tropes um, that uh, I think can be deeply hurtful and, and obviously have a long legacy of uh, damaging um, and, be, and targeting specific people. Um, so I, I think it was obviously... Um, you know, wrong. I think it fed into a narrative that I think we don't want to advance as a country or as a have our legislators advancing. So, uh, you know, I think uh, she should own up to it. And I think uh, the House and, and Congress are taking some steps to condemn all sorts of, you know, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, you know, anything against LGBTQ people. I think that's the right approach. Mike Miller from mm-hmm. DePaul University. Is this the gift of the Democrats to the Republicans that might keep giving? Oh, it's just it's been going on and on. Uh, socialism, Open borders, uh, extremism on abortion, seventy uh, percent tax rates, and now this. I just it just keeps going and going. It's like let's reelect Trump best we can, and I enjoy her comment. Do you think her comments were anti-Semitic? One time, you could you can misspeak. Two times, maybe misspeak. Three times, you can't do it. It's something that she feels. I and so. Um, I just don't know. And, and, and to say that she didn't know what her words meant is insulting to her. I mean, she's a woman. She's an adult. She knows what she's saying. 
and she said something which is, to most of us, very disturbing. Uh, and I'm also disturbed that Congress, I'm not a big fan of Congress uh, virtue signaling through all these kinds of, of bills that they pass and resolutions. But to take this one, where only one issue was at front and center, and then to lard it full of everything else, and then have her say in her first tweet after it was passed that the thing she was most happy about was that it went against uh, uh, Islamophobia. Right. She's, she's, she has no ear, no did political she, ear whatsoever. Question to Krista McRae. Did she, from a political standpoint, did she win by the way the House voted on this? Does she come out like a winner, like something to celebrate, which is what her, her tweet certainly suggested? Um, no, absolutely not. I mean, to equate people's kind of devotion overall to Israel and call it driven by Benjamins um, is just really tone deaf. Um, I, I think the resolution is silly. I think resolutions in general are just mm -hmm. toothless and meaningless. But the fact that they didn't name her and that they threw every other ism into it, I think, um, is a way that they are trying to cover their own tracks. She's making things very uncomfortable for someone like Nancy Pelosi. But I don't think a, a resolution is meaningful at all. Peter, do you think it's tone deaf? Or is she saying something that people think, but they don't have uh, uh, the, the platform to speak up? You know, I, I want to separate the issue of, of her being allowed to say, you know, speak freely and mm -hmm. express her view and the substance of what she said. Um, she can say whatever she wants, and she was elected by, mm -hmm. you know, constituents Absolutely. to speak her mind, and obviously she has the right to do so. But I think the content of what she said um, you know, was a little bit tone deaf. And I think she has to look at... What, what, what do you mean by tone deaf? Explain what you mean by that. Tone deaf, um, I think we all, hopefully all agree that it means really just uh, contextually aware of the moment, of, you know, the speaker, the, the listeners, and sort of the, the context that surrounds the comment. Um, you know, uh, Representative uh, had some regrettable tweets uh, in her history that, you know, she since deleted and you may find a couple of, of uh, anti-Semitic tropes in those tweets as well. So, you know, if I have that in my history and I know it's out there, I want to take as many, you know, as many, make as much of an effort as possible to make sure I'm not making those kinds of comments to corroborate, you know, a story or a narrative that, you know, my, my opponents and, you know, frankly, the uh, Republicans in the Senate and in Congress uh, might use against me. Georgia, so there, there are those that have suggested that APAC has had an incredible... Uh, thumb on the scale of the discussion of U.S. foreign policy mm -hmm. for decades. Mm -hmm. is, is there a way to say that without being perceived as anti-Semitic? And if you're anti-Israel or you're questioning Israel, does that automatically make you anti-Semitic? Questioning the foreign policy of another country doesn't make you anti the people of that country. It makes you anti the governmental policies of that country. That being said, I think she missed a really prime opportunity to make the point that she, I think, was trying to make, which is that foreign interest lobbying has too much sway over our policy, whether it's from Israel representing the interests of Israel or representing the interests of Egypt or representing the interests of a host of other countries, you need not look further than the Trump Hotel to see how many foreign governments are hosting their fundraisers there and are, and are trying to take advantage of that sphere of influence. So I think she could have came out and said, foreign governments in general and their lobbyists and their affiliates have too much sway on our American policy. And I think that that would have had a much higher rate of support, especially among people that are in Trump's base who do have this view of America first and do think that the American government hasn't had the interests of the American people at heart. She 
completely obviously didn't say that, bungled, I think, what she was trying to say. But if she had gone with that instead, I think we would have had a much more different discussion. But again, how, how widespread is that in the House? We, we hear about the, the three new members of, of Congress, and they're, they're, they're the threesome. But is it, is it broader than that? Is what broader than that? It is, is the feeling that they bring to the table, whether it's uh, socialism or whether it's this strain of perceived anti-Semitism, is it broader than, than three female members I of the House? I think they're definitely pushing the party to the left, yes. And Bernie Sanders, is he's, he's not challenged him on that. Well, I mean, he's leading in the polls right now also. That's right. So, um, I, I mean, may, maybe this is the direction that progressives and Democrats want the party to go because you don't see a lot of pushback. There's just, there's no conservative Democrat anymore. 1-800-723-8029. I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly from Chicago. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays, and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. We're coming back on the air. Let's continue our conversation. We were talking about the influence of APEC and and some of the some of the mistakes that uh, have been made, at least described by mistakes mm-hmm. uh, that these uh, at least the new members of Congress are, are making, and they're creating a problem for the party. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Is think, it a problem for the party, or is it an opportunity for the party? I think it's an opportunity. I mean, look, is, is, is there a PR issue with having to bat down some of their kind of either um, mess-ups, as it might be in the case that we were just discussing, or whether it's a case of being overly ambitious, like AOC, in terms of, I think, the Green Deal that was put out? Um, a lot of the candidates are going to have to respond to elements of it that they may not agree with. That being said... It's a huge opportunity for the party because I don't think you've seen the Democrats so energized in terms of debating new ideas. They may not all agree with them or the spectrum of them, but there's actually a debate happening on climate change. There's actually a debate happening on what the new economy and the gig economy looks like. And these are issues that these young leaders have brought forward. When we're talking about a presidential candidate who has put out a plan on maternity leave, when was the last time we heard a a debate Mm -hmm. about that? being front and center. And so I think that they're raising issues from a generation that we haven't really discussed before. Mm-hmm. Is, is there a place in that debate for uh, U.S. foreign policy towards Israel and whether or not there are influences? But let's talk from your perspective. I mean, there's a lot of influences. I mean, anti-Semitism is, is growing around the world. It isn't just to the United States. This discussion, I mean, is this a discussion that is healthy for the body politic. It may be embarrassing to the Democrats at the moment, but is this a healthy conversation to have? I think it's always healthy when you look at your you know, foreign allegiances or foreign entanglements to go back to the founding fathers and uh, assess sort of are we doing the right thing? Are we doing the best thing for our people, for the world at large? Um, but I think there is a layer of sort of what the media latches onto and, and kind of 
artifice that uh, is so you know readily will so readily subsume the actual issue. So I think it's an important. These are important questions, and there's room in the debate to have it. What I would say is, um, you know, kind of the point you made earlier, George, is this is really an opportunity to look at the power that lobbyists have across the board, not just APAC and, you know, Israeli lobbyists, but oil lobby, you know, coal lobby, every lobbyist who has influence with our legislators. And I recommend, you know, your viewers should watch the most, what is now the most popular, most viewed Twitter video in history, which is the, you know, three or four minute questioning by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, to folks about the power of lobbyists and how they could basically, you know, within the bounds of the law, use the law to get their policies into, you know, enacted. I think it's fine to to have a dis- I mean, I think Israelis wake up questioning these their own government. It's 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 okay to to have that debate and to kind of always be re-examining the relationship between Palestinians and, and Israelis. And I think in the and I also am one of these people who I don't like when the Twitter war starts and everything gets exaggerated and we were so politically correct that we're going to we're going to try to get into her heart and determine whether or not she's an anti-semite i don't know um so i think there is a middle ground to have these discussions and to not have everyone have an exaggerated response to them and i maybe that is the only silver lining out of her comments is that perhaps we will have more of those discussions is there any parallel between questioning Israel as one of our allies and the way that that um, Trump was pilloried by the left when he said, you know, NATO, maybe you ought to carry your own weight. Maybe you ought to put more money into defense. And people attacked him mercilessly that he is turning away our French um, comrades since what, since 1783 or something like that, and the British and the Germans and so forth. And how dare he question and get in between the Germans and the United States, the French in the United States, and now she. I just. Yeah, I, be, I think it's. I think it's apples and oranges because talking about the bilateral relationship with one specific country is completely different than questioning an agreement that has stabilized the world and has led to no, the longest really period not. of world peace. When you talk about what NATO has done for the United States, I mean, you hear Trump a lot talking about well, what we do for NATO. What NATO has done for the United States. Talk about after September 11th, the lives that they put on the line to help fight the war that was started when the twin towers went down. So questioning the NATO alliance, I think that's why you saw such a blowback about it, because it was talking about an alliance that has stabilized the world. And there's a reason why we haven't had a world war since. I think he was more questioning the the, the financial commitment of the other countries. And I know he he crossed the line, um, but we are NATO. I mean, if you look at the financial uh, contribution that, that we have made and that it's true other countries have not. I think that is an example of a story that got really blown out of proportion. He wasn't talking about dissolving NATO, I don't think. I don't I mean, think so. But he, was, but he was really pressing to have these other countries owe what they are supposed to be paying and what they agreed to pay to be part of what is a very expensive organization. And, and he was attacked also- for questioning that loyalty between us. And that, that, that plays, that's a big, strong uh, uh, appeal to his base as well. Oh, yes. That foreigners are not paying. And, and now, now the administration is considering whether or not to, to tax uh, countries where our soldiers are mm-hmm. stationed and charge them. I mean, they're, they're there because we choose to have them there. They have led to the stability of peace in the world. And yet he, the next thing is... Okay, let's let's send a bill to Japan and let's send a bill to South yeah, I Korea. I guess I wouldn't be Where so sen- I, I wouldn't be so sensitive about it 
if the United States was not attacked by both within the country, by the left, and others, that we're militaristic and we put way too much of our budget into the military. We do that because we have to carry others on our back. And, and so the fact that these other countries aren't paying their portion, if we're going to have to pay it, and then you attack us for being militaristic, it bothers me. I don't like that. I do what you're not willing to do, and then you attack me for doing what you expect me to do. I don't think people That's are saying that we're spending too much on oh, defense they do all the time. in terms of, I think one of the big issues is the accountability of the money. When you have the Pentagon reporting that it can't account for some one out of every $3 that's been allocated they, to it. They, and I've worked, the I've actually, military's attacked all the time, you know, that it's way too much of the budget. Peter. Uh, you know, and back in my private practice days, I worked on um, certain government contracts involving military, and I can tell you that just from my own personal interactions and obviously this is anecdotal evidence, it's there's a lot of money, and a lot of money does disappear. And of when you look at our in all bu- of government. That's why I, many of us are for small government. Particularly egregious when you look at the, the defense, but you know how much defense takes up of the whole budget because it's not. We're not talking a percent or five percent. We're talking about the largest portion. So when you scale up those missing one the largest portion of what? the uh, largest portion of the entire national budget. No, no, no. The largest portion of the discretionary budget. Mm-hmm. Right. Not a, the government spends $4 trillion. Yes, of course, right. The, the government, sure. the military is only a, 25% of that. Like it's not a mon- distinction, but yes, the discretionary budget. And it's the one thing it says in the Constitution. Time, one yeah, time. I'm trying to say that we have billions upon billions of dollars being spent on defense, mm-hmm. and if one out of three of many, many billions of dollars are completely lost, that's a problem. Beyond that, the, the money isn't being expended because we have to protect South Korea sure and Saudi Arabia. Sure it is. It's being spent largely on military contractors and just, you know, kind of... People have to be fed. There are, I mean, I, I I, Tammy Duckworth, who obviously very progressive liberal senator from Illinois, <clears throat> also fought in Iraq, mm-hmm. admits there is a lot of waste in the budget. And I think the frustration is that as fiscal conservatives... We can't keep holding up defense spending as the one area that cannot be touched. There can't, po- you know, when, when there are calls for across-the-board spending cuts, if you even suggest that there is waste in the defense budget, suddenly you're unpatriotic. I think that's ridiculous. Of course, I think there's I plenty of proof that there is waste in the defense budget as well, and it's and it's very hypocritical of fiscal conservatives to not just accept it, recognize it. You have budgets that have been produced by, like, the Rand Pauls and the Paul Ryans, where they have put together very detailed um, reports on how there's waste. Sure, but I, I guess, I'm, again, I'm reacting to those, I can, I can only say it one way, on the left, including the new, the, the new freshmen in the, uh, in the Congress. The trio. The trio, that, that we are militaristic. We spend way too much, compared to the rest of the world, on the military. Well, 54% and of our discretionary budget is, is the, of on course. the military. And, of and course, that's the lot. one thing that the much... Constitution says that the government is absolutely required to do is to protect us from all, um, uh, what is it, all foes, uh, domestic and and the Constitution says That's a lot a more great, than that. So, so I'd like to touch on that oh, point. So I think one, one of the reasons why there, you do see people that are frustrated with the military expenditures um, overseas is because they feel like there's things that aren't taken care of here at home, which would strike me as a very Trumpian argument that would resonate a lot with its base. And you brought up the responsibility uh, of the government to protect against enemies foreign and domestic. Mm-hmm. There, we've seen reports come out this year about the rise of domestic terrorism, the extreme rise in domestic terrorism groups, hate groups, groups that seek to bomb government agencies, 
uh, assassination threats against members of Congress, against even state and local officials, and yet we haven't seen the effort put forward, at least publicly, to renounce those groups, to go after them, and the types of funds necessary to dismantle their networks. And so it's, this, this was a report that, if you remember, we first started talking about this in the Obama administration, and he was pilloried for having his administration release a report on the rise of, of hate groups and, and domestic terrorism and domestic extremists, and now we've seen it, the problem get even worse. So yes, it is the government's job to protect against yes. enemies, foreign and domestic, yes. and that is certainly an issue, I think, where we've fallen by the wayside here at home. And I want to ask Kristen, yeah. um, why, why do you think it is that there's this kind of, you know, when it does come to talking or engaging fiscal conservatives about the budget, why is there this just instant, like, don't touch defense? Why, is there any way around that or any way to get through? I mean, I think there, I think it comes from sort of a, a fundamental belief that you're hearing in this room that there is, that that is the number one priority or responsibility of, of your federal government is to keep you safe. Um, and there is a lot of patriotism connected to wanting to take good care of soldiers who are away from their families who are serving overseas, who come back with tremendous medical conditions. Um, so, I, so I think it just sort of comes from that fundamental place of, of the Constitution. But I think it's a place of hypocrisy when you have, and I'm not suggesting that we drastically cut the defense budget, but even Trump's budget that he's going to sure. put forth, I think, tomorrow w- has like a $700 million increase. And when you are looking at waste, and that's what we talk about oh, all the time, and there are reports I mean, of, issue, of military officials having, you know, steak and lobster dinners flown to them three times a week, it it puts fiscal conservatives, and I am one, in an awkward place. Absolutely. We've got to pause. We also should talk about military housing, which is becoming a disgrace as well. Back to our debt. We can all get in a bit too deep. Members of the NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, can help you put debt in its place. Credit cards took charge of my financial life. An NFCC credit counselor helped me get back in control. I took charge of my debt. Student loan debt followed me wherever I went. My NFCC financial advocate taught me all I needed to know. I mastered my student loan debt. We wanted to buy our first home, but weren't sure if we were mortgage ready. Our NFCC housing counselor helped us make a plan. We're on a path to our first home. NFCC member agencies serve all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Convenient, helpful, knowledgeable, nonprofit. Financial advocates there for you. We We put put debt debt in in its place. place. Be one of 5 million people to beat debt by 2020. Connect with an NFCC certified credit counselor at your local member agency today. Go to nfcc.org slash stop debt or call 877-410-6322. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. We've got a great panel and we're going to let them introduce themselves right now, starting with Georgia Logothides. Hi, I'm Georgia Logothetti. I am a contributing editor at Daily Coast. I'm also a former attorney. And... And You're a new, mother of two. Mother of two, yeah, Ooh, brand new number two. When you first did this show, you were uh, single. I was single, yeah. It's That's been right. a while. Can you tell all the gray hair? Mm. No, I, you're, you're actually the second. And the under-eye circles from lack of sleep. You know, he well, still has we, sleep we had a guest a couple of weeks ago, Dan Johnson, and he started on this show when he was single, and now he has four children. Look at that. So this, is, this is a, a breeding so ground. Oh, the show is now. a breeding yeah, I'm ground. I'm with two for now. Thanks, Bruce. Mike Miller. Hi, I'm a uh, applied macroeconomist at DePaul. I've been there since uh, 1980. And I do a little bit of research on the side on the economy of Bahrain in the Middle East. And what do you, uh, what, when you go there, what are you looking for? Uh, I'm uh, 
how the economy operates, it's very small compared to the U.S., so how does a small economy operate compared to a big one? And it's very interesting. We, we have an MBA there, so I get to teach once every year or two, and it's a great experience. I've spent about a total of nine months there over the years and have great appreciation for it. It's essentially a Muslim um, Arab culture, and it's just fabulous to be there. How many, uh, how many U.S. troops are there? That's one of the oh, main... Oh, that's, uh, that's the Fifth Fleet is there. And I've, I've had former students who were military mm-hmm. and several students uh, who were uh, civilian employees of the Fifth Fleet. Peter Hanna. My name is Peter Hanna. I'm an attorney and uh, have a significant amount of constitutional law, civil rights, civil liberties experience. I work with nonprofits and lawmakers on a number of issues, uh, particularly in the technology, um, the area of technology, cybersecurity, privacy, data protection. Um, I'm also an adjunct professor of law at Chicago Kent, where I teach uh, privacy. And how old were you when you came to the United States? Two. Christmas Two. Day, 1982. Cool. And what is your first memory as an American? Um, my first memory as an American was actually probably the first toy I received when I must have been maybe like five or something. And it was um, made in Japan. No, no. It was actually uh, an Apollo 11 uh, lunar module lander because actually Apollo 11, that mission, and the entire Apollo-Mercury mission were the things that kind of first sparked my father's interest in moving to a country where, you know, anything, anything is possible. Yeah. So. A, a broader question, getting back to the first time. You, 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 you came to this country. You've become a citizen since you've, you've arrived here. Um, is, is Egypt and the future of Egypt, is it, is it top of your mind? Is it midway through your uh, – how much, I don't want to say allegiance, but how much interest do you have in, in the future of your – uh, original country? Um, it's a good, really good question. I always joke to my friends that Egypt as a country peaked too early. You know, the pyramids were really pretty great 5,000 years ago. So, you know, it, it's prime way, way too early. Um, you know, I think the people of Egypt, like, frankly, the people of most nations are, you know, good people. They want what everyone wants, which is safety and, and happiness. When I think about Egypt, I look at the last, like, five or six years and see the Arab Spring to the election of um, you know, Muslim Brotherhood uh, president to the deposing of that person and replacement by someone who looks and acts very similarly to, you know, the previous president, Hosni Mubarak. Um, I think that it's just, uh, you know, like the building of the pyramids, you know, getting to the right place will take a very long time. And I hope Egypt reaches that place and I hope I get a chance to enjoy it. And uh, I hope everyone gets a chance to visit uh, Egypt because it's a remarkable place. Kristen McQuarrie. I'm Kristen McQuarrie. I'm a member of the Tribune, Chicago Tribune editorial board, and I have a column that runs on Tuesdays. Um, I've always worked at newspapers. I tend to have a more conservative-leaning approach to problems in Chicago and Illinois, which makes me a very, very lonely person mm-hmm. in a very blue, uh, growing, democratic state and city. What about an editorial board? When you have your editorial, do they, do they listen respectfully, or are they... Uh, you know, are they clipping their nails while you're making your pitch? <laughs> <laughs> clipping nails. They are, my voice is like hands on a chalkboard, okay. I'm sure. To them. Um, I'm, but Bruce Dole allows a free, oh, well, sure. I mean, the Tribune, good longtime yes. friend. The Chicago Tribune editorial page, separate from the newsroom, is has a history of being more conservative, leaning free markets. Milton Friedman is our uh, North Star. So I'm fortunate in that. My own personal views kind of match up with the views of the Tribune most of the time. Um, and, yes, our editorial board is very diverse, from pretty left-leaning to libertarian to moderately conservative to conservative. So, we- when, you, when, you have a dis- when you have a discussion 
I mean, are there votes? I mean, it literally, is, does, does an endorsement of someone, does it win with a 5-4 vote? Or, I mean, how does that happen once you're making a major decision in a political race? Well, endorsements are different than the day-to-day decisions that we make on what to write about and who writes those. We sort of have beats, almost like you do in the newsroom. But an endorsement is generally, um, I mean, yes, they can be really down-and-dirty debates. They can get pretty boisterous. But the ultimate decision is the editorial page editor and the publisher. So I don't always agree with who we endorse in, in major races, and n- neither do o- other members of the board. Question uh, back to you, uh uh, George, and that is, I want to come back to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm-hmm. who has become this media darling. She's a she's an important political figure. Is she more of an of, of an important political figure, or is she more important as a media figure? And by being a media figure, she attracts attention and then is able to spread her thoughts and opinions to a a, a broader water group on Twitter and Facebook and every place else. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, she's still a freshman member of Congress, right? And how much power do those people wield? So um, I do think it is more of a a media star that she is right now. Um, Policy-wise, if she, you know, she introduced a bill, but she had to partner up with somebody else on it. Um, I do think that she brings a lot to the table. I think, like I mentioned earlier on the show, she brings a certain energy. And because there is this fascination with her and how her star has risen... Uh, anything that she says automatically gets attention. It's a good thing and a bad thing, right? Um, it's good when she's talking about something that I agree with. It's bad when she's talking about something I'm not agreeing with. But um, I, I am happy that there is this new life in the Democratic Party because for far too long, just like on the right, we were the party of old white men. And I think that now we're seeing a little bit of a change. Although if you look at the latest Iowa poll, it looks like we still may be the party of old white men, but we'll see. <laughs> to what extent is she an important figure because of her attractiveness. I think that certainly adds to kind of the star status of it. Um, I think, you know, it's something that is good for Instagram. It's something that's good for live video. People like to retweet her. But at the end of the day, um, what she's saying holds far more weight, I think, than how she looks in a photo. And what she's saying is resonating with a new generation of people who feel like their voice has been ignored for far too long. Is she creating the, uh, or continue to expand the base of Bernie Sanders, uh, Peter, in your opinion? I mean, clearly, uh, she is saying a lot of things uh, that Bernie has said before, and she seems to be, not that he doesn't have energy, but uh, she seems to be uh, another element of energy from the left in the party, as well as Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I think so. And I think the, you know, a lot of the ideas that she's putting forward, although, again, she is a freshman congresswoman, um, so politically, you know, limited power. But I think she's using her platform to amplify a lot of the um, ideas that galvanize the base that that really supported Bernie Sanders in the, uh, you know, the previous um, primary in the election. Um, And I think she's going to continue to do that. Uh, I think it's great for the Democratic Party. I think it's great for democracy to have these different voices and have people who, uh, you know, maybe are even more relatable than, uh, I mean, certainly infinitely more relatable than someone like Mitch McConnell um, out there speaking to the issues that really affect people uh, day in and day out. So I, I think it's a very good thing, and I think she's a, you know, a great, great person to amplify those issues. Kristen, how important is, uh, first of all, do you agree that, that she's maybe more a media darling than a political darling, or is it a combination of both? No, I think she's more of a media darling right now by a media that's... Um 
pretty hypocritical in the way they cover her and the mistakes that she makes and the historical references she makes that are factually incorrect. I mean, just the other day, I think she referred to Ronald Reagan as as a racist. I mean, I I think the only kind of kind thing I can say about her is that it's refreshing to see someone go to Washington and question things like lobbyist relationships and why are all these people lining up for committee hearings? Oh, they're homeless people who get paid to stand in line for the lobbyists. I just think it's going to be a very tough landing for her when she figures out that you, you, if you want to stay in Washington, you can't be so outside of the game that you don't recognize your own party, your establishment Democratic Party, is also taking lots of money from lobbyists and doing all the things that she finds despicable. And I think she just hired her boyfriend so I, to, to be on staff. So um, I, I think when you have that me- meteoric of a rise, you're going to have a, a, a pretty s- steep fall are at some the, point. She, uh, in addition to her, you, you have uh, the representative from Michigan. You also have the representative from uh, Minnesota that we talked about earlier, Representative Omar. Do you expect all of them to be primaried, Georgia? I mean, will these upstarts be uh, challenged? I hope so, because I'm I'm for primaries in general. I think nobody should ever run for office unopposed. I think in a healthy democracy, you have people that step up to the plate. Now, I don't know if as many as we saw in the mayoral election. I feel like that may have been a little bit too much, but um, it's nice to have a healthy debate, and, and it forces members of Congress to defend their records, whether you're a freshman that just stepped off of you know two years of your job or whether you've been there for two decades. You should be held accountable for your record when you go back to voters. Is it... Uh, this past week, Hillary Clinton said she was not going to run. Michael Bloomberg said he's not going to run. Sherrod Brown said that he's not going to run. Uh, of those three, what was the who was the most important one that you didn't want to hear say they were not going to run? Brown. Brown. I think that he was, I mean, he had just completed the, a uh, Dignity of Work tour, Done. and I think that his voice was one that was really needed to talk about what people are going through on a day-to-day basis, the people that are putting in 12-hour workdays. That became the sole drum that he was beating, mm. and I'm hoping that somebody else picks that up in the primaries. When Interesting he picked that up. I, I, it seems like the Democrats kind of ignored that whole entire group of people during the last election, and that's why they lost Michigan and Ohio, Wisconsin, and Ohio, and Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania and Florida. When we come back. I want to talk about. I want to talk about who wins those states the next time around. And I want to look at the field. Uh, Iowa has come out with its uh, first uh, straw poll, and they've got Joe Biden in first place and uh, uh, Bernie Sanders in second place. We'll talk about that and the rest of that field, which are pretty much also runs when we come back from Chicago. It's a bully. But we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. 
candidate and most anti-establishment. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. And again, I want to give a great big welcome to new listeners in St. Louis, Missouri, joining us tonight on KXFN. 1380 AM, 105.3 FM, The Answer. It's a Salem station. It's our third Salem station uh, joining us on the air. And again, it's great to be on now in St. Louis. And to everybody listening in St. Louis for the very first time to this program, I am not a Cubs fan, period. (laughs) I am not a Cubs fan. I'm a White Sox fan. So anyway, because I know that... uh, if you live in St. Louis, that's one of the first questions people ask is your baseball fandom. And, again, certainly the rivalry between Chicago and St. Louis, at least on the baseball field, has been pretty uh, pretty dramatic. But, again, it's great to have you with us, part of the Beyond the Beltway Network, every Sunday night. Nice to have you with us. Uh, let's talk about um, this Iowa poll that came out. It had uh, Joe Biden in first place with 27 percent. These are these are of uh, Democratic voters uh, in Iowa, caucus uh, participants. Uh, Bernie Sanders was second with 25 percent. Then Elizabeth Warren with 9 percent, and then 8 percent for Kamala Harris, and then 5 percent for uh, Beto O'Rourke, and everybody else was basically 3 percent or 1 percent. But there were 13 percent that were undecided. So my question to you is, um, how strong a candidate is Joe Biden, in your opinion? Peter, I want to get it from you first. Um, I think Joe Biden, uh, like many other candidates, missed their moment in the last election. I think uh, they could have been very formidable opponents and formidable candidates. Um, you know, had that primary been as broad and open as the primary we have uh, coming up in 2020, I think he would still be a really strong candidate. And I think he could, um, you know defeat Donald Trump in a, in a presidential election. Uh, but I think these polls are super duper early. It's a, a very long campaign season. And I think right now it's really just name recognition more than anything else. Um, Georgia. I think people underestimate Joe Biden. I think they kind of cast him aside as well. You know, people want a young woman to, to be on the ticket. I think they <clears throat> underestimate the appeal that he has based off of his decades of relationship building across the country with state and local democratic parties. So um, that's the first thing. Second of all, he's absolutely right. It is so early. Um, A lot of it obviously is name recognition. You can see that by the fact that a uh, member in Texas who, you know, is all of a sudden ranking in the top 10 and, and loser. Yeah. yeah, Loser in Texas. So um, I think one thing though, to, to pay attention to is the fact though it's early, but it's not so, so early that those candidates that are below the top five shouldn't start wondering a little bit about um, maybe altering their strategy or a massive infusion of money to get some more attention. I, I agree with, uh, with Peter. I think Joe Biden is a guy who's, whose time has passed. I mean, his time has passed. Historically, when he ran for president on his own, he ran two very lousy campaigns for yep. president, had to d- literally drop out, uh, forced out of one because of the plagiarism charge. Uh, wasn't very successful in the other one when he ran against Barack Obama. I think was surprised that he was picked by Barack Obama, at least it surprised a lot of yes. political stuff. And I just think there is a, I think there's a vault full of videotape mm-hmm. of, of, of Joe Biden saying things and doing things, whether it's his conduct of the Anita Hill, uh, Clarence Thomas hearings or, or other statements or, or, you know, hugging women or whatever the case may be. I think, just think there's a whole bunch of stuff mm-hmm. in his background that will come out. And, and his, his best day as a candidate is the day 
before he announces. I think that's the problem with a lot of the candidates. They haven't really been vetted, right? I mean, even look at Bernie Sanders. Right. Um, one of the complaints that a lot of people in the Clinton camp have is that she kind of held her fire and didn't go after him, yeah. in part because she didn't want to have such a fractured post-primary base, which she right. ended up having anyway. So um, a lot of these candidates, it's their first time in the national spotlight, and they want the presidency pretty bad. So I think you'll be surprised what comes out. I don't know. I see him as the person that would make Trump supporters most nervous because yes. even though he has, exactly. he, there is this vault of gaffes. I mean, you can look up all the gaffes of Joe Biden. He always gets a pass. I mean, this is someone who said you can't walk into a 7-Eleven without an Indian accent. Um, that's just the beginning of a long list of things that if anyone else uttered those remarks, they would be forced to step down. And they Barack be, Obama was clean and articulate. Cl- yes. yes. Good looking. Clean, clean and our here we've got this black candidate who's yes I mean you may say the same thing about Kamala Harris well <laughs> well he she would crush him if he did but <laughs> the point is he has so he so he gets away with those kinds of things people just like oh he's just bumbling Joe but he is very likable and he's really smart I mean if you think back to his debate with Paul Ryan and how he just I mean he just cleaned the floor mm-hmm. with right. with Paul Ryan he's you I think sometimes people underestimate. His his vast ability to if he if he focuses <laughs> to uh, to really impress people and I think he has a young audience that really kind of likes that authentic the Joe. Uncle Joe thing. Yes. Yeah, and I think actually something that's been floated um, is him running and picking up Harris as a VP and then pledging to only run one term. I think a lot of those gaffes and those kind of um, mm-hmm. a, a grievances would be forgiven if people knew that essentially they had. Harris in the waiting. But you were, you're ahead. correct about stuff coming out. I think I just saw this week, maybe in the Tribune, about comments he made in the 70s regarding busing in, D- in yes. Delaware. And, oh, it takes a, you have to sit next to a white child for a black child to, to learn or something. Oh, my gosh. I'm not sure we have the complete context, but if you were to read the sentences he said, they would be, can, can they I would be devastating. Like, and, and this may be a question for you from the newspaper side, but aren't we living in kind of a post-accountability world right now where if you do end up saying something because of the news cycle and because of how people just give everything a pass at the end of the day and just vote D or R, I think that a lot of the stuff that may be coming out at the end of the day, people just want Trump out of office, that they're willing to forgive a lot of stuff. And the opposite way, too. People are willing to forgive a lot of stuff from Trump as well to vote for him. I I mean, yes, I think that's true. But I think if you compile all of this stuff about Joe Biden, it could be enough to dismantle him because you don't want to have Trump part two Mm -hmm. in who can't control what he says. Um, At the same time, I think people like him and he gets a pass. I think he gets a pass in the general election. I don't think he gets a pass in the the primary. primary. The primary is what could kill him off because too many other people saying, why him? Why him? And again, you've got got Bernie Sanders out there. He's still playing to big crowds and raising lots of money. I'm Bruce Dumont. We've got another full hour wherever you're listening from coast to coast and border to border. Don't go away. We will return from Chicago with another full hour of Beyond the Beltway. Standing up for what's right, helping out when things go wrong, seeking the truth and speaking our minds, not just making records, but breaking them, leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. 
not just making our mark, but making a difference, now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Debt. We can all get in a bit too deep. Members of the NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, can help you put debt in its place. Credit cards took charge of my financial life. An NFCC credit counselor helped me get back in control. I took charge of my debt. Student loan debt followed me wherever I went. My NFCC financial advocate taught me all I needed to know. I mastered my student loan debt. We wanted to buy our first home, but weren't sure if we were mortgage ready. Our NFCC housing counselor helped us make a plan. We're on a path to our first home. NFCC member agencies serve all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Convenient, helpful, knowledgeable, nonprofit. Financial advocates there for you. We, we put, put debt, debt in, in its place. place. Be one of 5 million people to beat debt by 2020. Connect with an NFCC certified credit counselor at your local member agency today. Go to nfcc.org slash stop debt or call 877-410-6322. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. We've got Mike Miller from DePaul University with us this evening. We've got Kristen McQuarrie. She's on the editorial board of the Chicago Tribune. We have Peter Hanna from uh, Chicago Kent College of Law, also with the ACLU. And we have Georgia Logothides, who's a contributing editor of the Daily Costs. Uh, Professor, as the economist, uh, let's look at the, the February uh, jobs reports came yeah. up. Uh, 20,000 jobs, uh, which is uh, a lot less than was expected. Uh, Give us your assessment of this report. Never put any faith into how many were expected. That's simply a guess. That's a forecast. That's a useless number. All that matters is the number that comes out. And you should never look at such numbers one at a time and draw many inferences. What you want to look at is the average over time or if there's any kind of a trend going on there. And the numbers are are still astounding. Um, This will be... In July, it will be the longest expansion in the history of the American economy. It will be 10 years old, and the moment it gets past July, it will be the longest on record. Unemployment, uh, one of the things people are beginning to talk, the word recession has been been brought up. Uh, Recessions are, in almost every single case, preceded by a rise in the unemployment rate of about a half a percent or more before 
the recession kicks in, there's no evidence that that is occurring. There's also a thing called an inversion of a yield curve, which has not occurred. So the, the economy, when they take, a, there's a manufacturing index, they ask manufacturers, how much are you doing? How do you look towards the future and so forth? Instead of falling, it has risen in the most recent thing. So almost across the board, with the exception of housing, which is a little bit weak now that interest rates are a bit higher, uh, the economy is just fine. Interest rates seem to be just where they – I'm hoping the Fed will leave them alone. There was an increase in wages, 3.4 percent yes. increase in wages. The, How was that determined? Uh, that's done through a survey. There, there's something called the Current Population Survey, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, simply piggybacks on that monthly survey. They call 60,000 households a month. And they ask them a whole series of questions, and that's where we get the unemployment rate and the wages and uh, work week and all those different types of things. And we also get data from a survey of, corp- of uh, what are called uh, establishments, uh, companies. 400,000 every month are, are surveyed to ask them, how many, p- how many jobs do you have that are filled in your, in your establishment? Is there a way to determine when you're looking at the, at the, at the uh, increases in wages – is there any way to determine whether or not someone who's, let's say, making thirty-five or you know forty thousand mm-hmm. dollars a year, compared to someone that's making eighty or ninety thousand mm-hmm. dollars a year, whose wages are going up? Well, ultimately, those data will come out later when we have all the tax returns data. That's why it takes several years for us to get really good data on on income distribution because you have to wait till the tax returns data come back in. But many of these, uh, these numbers are for manufacturing employment, for example. So these are people that are they're on the, the main line doing the manufacturing work. And, and how many dollars are you being paid by hour? And, every, of course, not everybody gets the, a raise at exactly the same time. So every given month, different people will be getting raises. And those simply accumulate over time. And workers are finally, uh, after many years where workers were not getting their cut, Workers are getting their cut. Some of uh, of the new left in the Democratic Party, they would like to make uh, 2020 a referendum on either socialism or capitalism. Sure. As an economist and as uh, someone you'd like to see a mm-hmm. conservative be uh, elected president, mm-hmm. uh, even though you were not a supporter of Donald Trump, is that a good – would it be good to have a whole campaign that really looks at the free enterprise system and capitalism versus socialism, or are you worried – that your side might lose that race? I don't think we will lose. Um, my, my problem, I usually have it, is that it's almost always a comparison between the promises of socialism, of what it could be, not what it is in Venezuela or Cuba, what it could be versus what capitalism actually is. And capitalism has warts. There's no doubt, there's no doubt about it. But socialism is inherently flawed. It does not accept human uh, that we are self-interested, and it doesn't tap into that self-interest. And because it is going to, to discount the importance of self-interest and so forth, it will not lead to the, to the largest possible outcome. Georgia Logothetis, let me ask you the same question. You're, you're left of center. You've been a progressive. Yeah, I don't think there's – I mean, the, the right is going to try and make it a debate between socialism and capitalism, but that's not a debate that's actually happening in the Democratic Party. We throw around labels a lot, right? What's socialism? It's advocating that the government owns the means of production. Nobody on the left is seriously advocating that. Even if you look at AOC, right, who they, they put on posters as a socialist, what is she really advocating? She's not saying the government's going to come and seize the means of production. 
election. And she doesn't she's know what socialism stuff, is. She's, say, she's saying policies that are actually supported in polls by the vast majority of the American people. What we are seeing, and, and by the way, I think it was Warren had a great response to the, a similar question. She says, I'm a democratic capitalist. I want capitalism to work, and it doesn't work when people cheat the system, which is what's happening now. Going back to the wage growth issue, because I think that ties into what we're talking about in terms of socialism versus capitalism. It's great that we're seeing the unemployment numbers where they are. What happens when we reach full employment? That's there. one question. We're, we're there. almost there, right? We're if there. not, we're there. Yes, I'll defer to the expert yeah. economist on that one. And then, then we need to start talking about real wage growth. And it's great that we've had this uptick in wages, but it's certainly not enough to make up for the fact that the vast majority of wealth that has been created over the last 10 to 20 years has gone to the upper 1%. And I think in the Democratic Party, when you talk about policies like making sure that people get a fair wage for a fair day's worth of work. You're going to hear cries of socialism from the right, but they're really talking, again, about policies that are supported by the majority of American people. But remember, the second half of socialism is not just the public, mean, the public ownership of the means of production. It is also where the government makes decisions on the mm-hmm. pricing and the distribution of the goods that are produced, including the price of labor or the price of energy or the price of medicine and so forth. Socialism is inherently flawed because it doesn't go through the calculating process that a market does to find the right price to allocate the scarce resource. So, uh, because well, yeah, I'm going to ask, go you, I'm gonna ask a, a campaign-related question. Because uh, o- 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 AOC is such an articulate spokesperson, she is a media darling. She's pushing this message. She's getting all kinds of you know, feedback and a, a t- tremendous couple of million people on, on Twitter. If she becomes, if she defines the, the race, isn't it going to be easy for the Republicans and President Trump to refer to her and the Democratic Party as, as a socialist party? Because he knows how to brand, Peter. Sure he does. I mean, I think it becomes easier for her to be a target. But the truth is, actually, what both of you have said, um, particularly Georgia, I mean, there are these issues that an overwhelming majority of the electorate um, are pretty clear on. You know, everyone should have health care for all. Taxes should be higher on the super ultra wealthy. There should be more social services, you know, better education and more abundant education for people at all wage levels. Um, And I think really what she's going to have to do and what the candidates are going to have to do is bring it back away from the name calling and away from a lot of the kind of targeting and say, like, look, we're not campaigning as socialists to rebuild, you know, the economic system around a like socialist kind of uh, foundation. But we're saying that. Americans want this and Americans need this and we're in, it's 2020. Do you agree time. with that, Krista? I mean, I just I don't I don't know what everyone's individual definition is of socialism or even what the what the, what the actual definition is. I just see, especially in this state, you have socialist policies, the huge expansion of government and continuing to do so. We spend billions of dollars on anti-poverty programs and they're not working. We our, our spending on education in this state alone has tripled over the past 10 years. Where is all the money going? I mean, it's this, this <clears throat> idea that somehow the opportunities aren't there or we're not supporting social services we are our taxes have been increasing we were talking a little bit about illinois exodus and people just kind of giving up so to me that's kind of what the beginning of socialism looks like you had a socialist party commenting on governor pritzker winning the election and some of these other lawmakers who are now in springfield talking about rent control and things that are socialist policies we got to be back shortly from chicago Standing up for what's right, helping out when things go wrong, seeking the truth and speaking our minds, not just making records, but breaking them, leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. 
not just making our mark, but making a difference, now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays, and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Bruce Dumont, back in Chicago. Thanks for joining us. I want to pick up on our conversation about uh, the Democratic field for 2020, and Bernie Sanders is out there. He's raised a lot of money. He's still playing to big, big crowds. Um, Are you worried about his age, Georgia? I'm worried about everybody's age. Being president is a very stressful job. Um, If you mean, like, from an electability standpoint, I think he's, I mean, he's got his base. And it's actually grown in the last year. His email list has grown. His fundraising has grown. I think that people are willing to sidestep the age question with him. Now, will they do the same thing with Biden? Will they do the same thing with anybody else that's older that gets in the race? I don't know. But Bernie has this energy, especially because of the way he describes his policies, that is kind of making people forgive his age a little bit. If if Biden does not chooses not to run, and that's still a possibility, or if he gets into the race and he sputters <clears throat> and he does not appear to have the muscle that people hope he has, who emerges as the centrist? Is it is it Amy Klobuchar or is it someone else, Peter? I think Amy's Klobuchar is Amy Klobuchar is probably the 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 person who takes up <clears throat> the mantle of the centrist in the Democratic uh, of the, among the Democratic candidates. I think actually you shouldn't. Um, Overlook Kamala Harris, who I think will, at that point, probably really emphasize her prosecutorial career, uh, tough on crime, and you know her bona fides there. But it's it's really hard to say. I think um, just to respond to your first question, I think Bernie's age is probably irrelevant for the folks that are in his base. It's probably irrelevant for most people, particularly given that the current sitting president is you know right right around the same age. Um, <coughs> but yeah, I, I do think with Biden gone, <coughs> it's probably going to be Amy Klobuchar and um, a couple of others who will, will kind of move around that central role. She could emerge, obviously, as a vice presidential candidate. Uh, one of the questions I want to ask of everybody is that, you know, Bernie Sanders in the past has never been able to really generate a lot of excitement in the African-American community. And now you have Camilla Harris, you've got uh, uh, Cory Booker running, uh, what is he going to do? A couple of weeks ago, we had Don Rose, who's one of the legendary strategists in, in local politics here, also does a lot of national stuff. And he just said that he, he didn't think that Bernie Sanders learned anything from 2016 on how to really reach out to black folks and feel, you know, feel their, their pain and feel their suffering. Does anybody disagree with that no point? I, I don't i don't chris and, and but Rose how do you win a democratic insightful. primary without yeah. a, how do you win a general election how do you win well, a general election you, without an enthusiastic black base i don't know how you do it i mean the black you, vote you is very up, you pick an african-american <clears throat> vp that's well, what you do well, vp yeah. is or is vp going to be enough I mean, I was going to say the, the you know, as an electorate or like a voting block, the black um, vote is very reliable when it comes to actually getting out and voting. So I think right. if Bernie is a Democratic candidate, he will get, you know, the black vote. Um, but you're he's right. He's not going to get a, he's not, he, he'll, he'll, he'll have the same problem that Hillary did. Hillary should have had a much stronger black turnout, but she didn't have it because she wasn't black. So the question is, if, if you want to win an election, does your candidate have to be black? 
I don't think so at all. I don't think so. I don't think so. Does it have to be a woman? I don't think so at all. I think they have to be authentic, and I think that we talked about that a little bit earlier, um, where Bernie probably does have more of an authenticity vibe than Hillary Clinton. Um, But you're right. I'm not – there's no, like, feel the burn uh, signs in in Chicago Southside neighborhoods that I've seen. And I could, I could almost guarantee you a year from now, uh, if we're all gathered here, we will not be talking about Bernie Sanders as the mm. candidate. Mm. Well, will you, be, you think Kamala Harris, right? I think, uh, I think it's going to come down to Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren uh, with you know, potentially someone like Beto O'Rourke as a VP candidate. Interesting. So you don't think her, Elizabeth Warren's problems with who she is terms of you know, I, I, I mean, the identity, identity politics. politics. I think things. they're going to be problematic um, potentially in the general election. I don't think yeah, they're going to be an I, issue I, at all in the primaries. Yeah. I don't think people really care about that. I oh, mean, honestly, I like I know on the right people do care about it. And, oh. and I can tell you on the left, people don't think of it. They think of it just like an attack, like a Pocahontas slur attack. Yeah. I don't think the general election, people care about <clears throat> jobs. People care about whether or not their children are going to go into, yeah, have a mortgage to go to you know, school. Mm. I don't think people really care about things like, did she check something off on a form that she wasn't supposed yes. to? I am surprised we aren't talking about don't Howard you, Schultz. He's the funnest candidate no, to talk don't, about. Don't, yeah. you, don't you want, don't the Democrats want someone that can win? Absolutely, but, every, but, 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 but that token, everybody has a drawback, right? We've, let, we talked yeah, about right. Biden and his gaffes. Now we haven't talked much her. about Amy Klobuchar. What is your assessment of Amy Klobuchar? She's not going to get out of the primary. Um, people already have serious issues with the way that she was managing her uh, offices and the reputation that she had on the Hill, and that reputation preceded the article. So this yes. has been going around in circles for a while, and I think people are looking for somebody, especially now when we're and talking. And that's not just because she's a woman. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, we're just talking about your managerial style. Everybody has one, and I think that hers, especially when we're talking about protecting employees, honoring people's you know dignity of work. We just spoke about it earlier. I think having somebody, and that those stories may just be the tip of the iceberg. I don't think people want to risk with any more stories coming out. All right, I want to I want to switch gears and talk about somebody, and when I want to get Kristen's response, uh, Howard Schultz. Mm-hmm. How important is he, or realistic is he, as a candidate for president of the United States uh, as an independent? Oh, he's tough because he's very. I, I like him. I think he's very attractive. I, I, I think he sort of fits into that centrist mold that a lot of people are looking for. Capitalist yet compassionate. Um, has a success story. Will fight back when people have attacked him along those lines. But, gosh, I mean, to get to a point where he is an actual player in a presidential race, I just feel like he's not. Uh, he's he's not prepared for what's coming his way, and so I don't see him really surviving. Um, but I, I like the idea of trying to kind of break the mold of everything we're talking about here. You know, Democrat, Republican, who's going to appeal to black voters? What about a guy who just comes from the middle and sort of just t- speaks common sense? I think, can't, I think voters are looking for that. And what about, what about Beto O'Rourke? I mean, are, are, are you worried uh, that Beto O'Rourke could be s- something like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump combined offered to the Democrats in 2020 that he's a guy that just catches fire because of his charisma. He may not have the track record. He may not, he may not have won an election. Obviously, he was a member of Congress. But again, it, he has the magnetic. He, he, he clicks with the crowd. He clicks with people, and they turn out in massive numbers to support him financially and at the polls. I, I agree with all of that. I don't think he can beat Trump. And so at the end of the day, if someone like a Biden gets in, I still think that is the biggest, that is their, the 
thing that Republicans are most nervous about. And if, if it comes down to voters trying to decide who is be- best equipped to overturn and kick out an incumbent Republican Trump, um, I, I wouldn't see Beto O'Rourke being that person. Georgia? Yeah, I think that I'd like to see. I mean, he does very well on the campaign trail, but the question is, how does he actually manage a campaign? Is and to he manage smart? a national campaign? Is he smart? I think he's intelligent. I think he's certainly more intelligent than the average member of Congress. But um, I think managing a national campaign, we talk a lot about the actual policies. It's a big job. And you can get caught up. And, you know, it takes one little scandal or one little slip up, and all of a sudden you slip in the yeah. polls. I don't think he's ready for that type of spotlight yet. Going back to Schultz, I don't see him having a natural constituency. When you have all the when all the chips fall, who, who's his constituency that's going to turn out in the numbers needed to actually in a three way field? Schultz will have. Oh, go ahead. My hope, because I, I I'm afraid of the Democrats with the social. I'm sorry. I <laughs> I still think they're going to try to do anything they can to make a world I don't want. It isn't that these people will leave the Democrats and vote for Trump. They will leave the Democrats and vote for him. Vote for but Schultz. I don't. But I don't. And think I think there be- might be just enough in the swing states. That, that these people are the independents and so forth, that in some sense, even the fact that the DNC said they're not going to go on Fox for any of their primary debates, what a silly thing to do, to not at least show your Trump face to these people. Trump boycotted the Fox debates as well. Trump you don't remember? I don't care yes. what and he did. Trump boycotted, saying, but, but what I'm saying I, is you didn't have an issue just with think it. Of, I, can, can I just get a word on an Howard Schultz? Sure. So I have a message for Howard Schultz. Um, we don't need any enlightened billionaires, you know, kind of jumping into oh the race to take us to the promised land. Um, I think Howard Schultz will have a long conversation with the Starbucks board sometime between now and January, um, and he will not be running um, because I think you would see pretty quickly that stock begin to tank. He avoided oh. the question about whether or not he would sell his stock, too. That was, yeah. And I think he might even, well, he might even become a non-billionaire um, if he chooses yeah. Trump because, look, of all, of all elections, my message to Howard Schultz is put your money behind the candidate that you think is most like you and – you know, most in line with your views, because to you know the good professor's point, um, it would be a, a boon to Donald Trump mm-hmm. to have a third-party mm-hmm. candidate, just like it was a boon to Donald Trump to have a couple of you know write-ins for Bernie Sanders and Jill Sanders, um, you know, in the uh, in the last election. Did you have the same feelings about J.B. Pritzker, another enlightened billionaire who just won the governor's office in <laughs> Illinois? But I love the double standard. No, no, there's no double standard. Um, but did you vote for party Did you nomination. vote for Pritzker? I did. did you support but, him. But, okay. The governor won the party nomination. If Howard Schultz wants to win a nomination, yeah. by all means, throw your hat. And in the really, it was two ring. billionaires on the ballot, right? So yeah, it's exactly. It's like, well, right, and, the, and I don't yeah. have a problem with we that. I celebrate well. For I think success a is a wonderful thing. Yeah, but no, going back with the natural, like, con- the natural constituency, but in those swing states, right? You are right. He's going to peel off some voters, but he can't peel off enough voters to win the presidency. He knows that. Everybody knows that. So the only reason he's in is because of ego. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is he's detracting away from a real debate because. He's not talking about the issues. When you hear Howard Schultz speak, he's not really talking about issues except in these, like, top lines that you see, like, in the top lines of a poll. He's not getting down into actual policy proposals. And so if the whole point is, well, I'm in as a spoiler to move the debate, you're not really advancing the debate by just talking about yourself. But you just talked about earlier how you like to see enthusiastic primaries, and I get it. He's a third party. But why why doesn't the more the merrier philosophy, everyone should run, nobody should run unopposed, people should run, but doesn't apply to him. I'm happy to see him. No, I'm happy to see him run. Under the Democratic umbrella. I've heard, I've heard, 
I know nothing about it, and I don't That's drink. That's the status quo. Yeah. You're, you're, you're for the two parties. No, no, no. I mean, anyone else. You're speaking hey, against Hey, look, billionaires uh, and non-billionaires alike, bring them in, put them, in the, no, put them I, on the, up there and have them debate. I don't want A lot him. of snarky like, things said about him. I never heard of him. I don't drink coffee. So I've never been to a Starbucks. I, I, got, I actually picked up some stuff for my son one time. <laughs> I've been in one, I think maybe two at the most. So I looked him up. I, I, I talked to a friend, uh, I have a colleague who's a professor of management. The guy came from nothing, right? Yeah. He came from, oh, the, yeah. from the projects, as they say. He came up with a really cool Mike, idea. Mike, we've got to pause. We'll let you follow through on your uh, bio on Howard <laughs> Schultz. Debt. We can all get in a bit too deep. Members of the NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, can help you put debt in its place. Credit cards took charge of my financial life. An NFCC credit counselor helped me get back in control. I took charge of my debt. Student loan debt followed me wherever I went. My NFCC financial advocate taught me all I needed to know. I mastered my student loan debt. We wanted to buy our first home, but weren't sure if we were mortgage ready. Our NFCC housing counselor helped us make a plan. We're on a path to our first home. NFCC member agencies serve all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Convenient, helpful, knowledgeable, nonprofit. Financial advocates there for you. We We put put debt debt in in its place. place. Be one of 5 million people to beat debt by 2020. Connect with an NFCC certified credit counselor at your local member agency today. Go to nfcc.org slash stop debt or call 877-410-6322. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. And again, uh, one of the other big stories that emerged last week uh, was pushing uh, uh, North Korea back on the front burner. Uh, there were reports and, and, and uh, uh, intelligence uh, surveillance video uh, and pictures that were released, not not by the government, but mm-hmm. by a private source, uh, and they basically showed that uh, the uh, the North Koreans appear to have uh, a variety of uh, sites uh, under construction or in varying degrees of construction uh, in uh, North Korea, and uh, some of these were being uh, d- created during the time when Kim Jong Un and President Trump were meeting in Vietnam recently. And uh, it's, it's raised the issue of whether or not uh, we're getting the straight poop from the President of the United States or from the intelligence community. And uh, he was uh, quizzed last week, the President was quizzed last week, about what does this all mean given all the showmanship that you've put in to the two summits with your alleged buddy, Kim Jong-un. And this is what the President had to say. I will tell, but I have a feeling that our relationship... With North Korea, Kim Jong-un and myself, Chairman Kim, I think it's a very good one. I think it remains good. I would be uh, surprised in a negative way if he did anything that was uh, not per our understanding. Kristen, is this going to be a big uh, Achilles heel for the president when uh, six months ago we thought it was going to be a big opportunity for him? I mean, we kind of know that the president doesn't have the best judgment when it comes to Uh, sidling up with foreign leaders where he thinks they're taking him seriously. He thinks they're negotiating in good faith. And these are just regimes that I personally, they can't, they won't ever negotiate in good faith. I mean, he was backing Syria's leader at one point. He's been, he's backed Putin. Um, I'm just assuming this is going to be another case where it's going to be a hard lesson for him. At the same time, I don't think we should not be negotiating in in, in some respects, but his, his ability to read the room uh, is concerning. 
Given the fact that we're, we've also been talking about, you know, Paul Manafort and uh, and uh, uh, Michael Cohen, is he just a poor judge of character, Mike? I, I wonder about how in the world he had Cohen for 10 years as his personal lawyer. But uh, I, I see it. You never, ever negotiate without double-checking with a communist. Communists are notorious liars, and, and this is a, a communist nation. But there, there, if there is one positive thing about this, if this all blows up in his face and we have to, and, and it gets into some kind of a conflict, he can say with a straight face, I did everything I could to try to meet this man halfway, and he would come nowhere. And I did more than anybody else to try to get this man to behave and to be part of the uh, international community. And so if it does come to blows someday, I think we've at least set the, the stage that this isn't because of a lack of trying. It's because of the, of the nature of the North Korean uh, Would you give the president uh, that credit, uh, Peter? Um, no, I wouldn't. I think mm. what Trump has done is he's you know, skewed this traditional bottom-up diplomacy. And, I mean, it's a reason, there's a reason why diplomacy is always kind of run from the ground up, because you allow the diplomats and the folks on the ground who can level with each other to knock out a lot of the things that you wouldn't want the two heads of state to be talking about. Trump's gone to Asia now twice, and we have virtually nothing to show for it except accelerated development on commercial satellite imagery. I can't even imagine what the intelligence community has of um, launch sites, uh, nuclear uh, refineries, nuclear fuel refineries. We have captives uh, returned. We have the returns of uh, downed uh, soldiers uh, returned. Uh, and and what we also don't have is we don't have the war games uh, that uh, right. Kim Jong Un did not want. And we canceled our own. But the president argued that uh, they were canceled because they were too costly. I mean, it, it's uh, it goes to the question and the issue. I think that's been under undertone here about the president's judgment. And I think his judgment isn't just bad with respect to sidling up to foreign leaders. I think his judgment is bad across the board. You know, uh, the professor mentioned. You know, he's surprised that he ever hired someone like Michael Cohen. I mean, I'm an attorney. And I could tell you that an attorney like that, you hire only because you want someone who has no ethics, no <laughs> sense of principle, and you want someone to do the dirty tricks that, you know, only that type of person would do. So Donald including Trump is recording your client, including recording yeah, your clients. And Donald Trump, um, you know, unfortunately for us and the country um, and the world really is that type of person with that type of judgment. Yeah. Georgia. I mean, in North Korea, credit where credit is due. We did get the return of hostages. That's huge. The return of remains, that's huge. It's fantastic for their families. <coughs> but by the same token, his policy on North Korea is so erratic. So on the one hand, he was – remember, people seem to forget that in the beginning of his presidency, he was Rocket threatening man. war with North Korea, remember? Rocket man. Rocket, Rocket man. man. On Twitter. Yeah, on yes. Twitter. And, yeah. and we were – you know, everyone was, was gripped with what's going to happen next. And then he reached out, and all of a sudden, as you said, they became kind of best friends – um, and the question is, well, if we ever do get to that Maybe point that's that why you're they saying talked. Maybe because he said, we will not stand by and let you do this. Maybe that's why Kim came to the table. Kim has always wanted to be at the table, though. Kim has asked every single administration. The, the, right. Kim's dream, the whole entire regime's dream, has been to get legitimacy from the United States government via a high-level meeting. That's what they've wanted. And that's what it. Trump gave negative? them on a silver platter. That's absolutely that, that, that a negative. Barack Obama said he would talk to, to any leader at any time on, with no should, preconditions before he became we president. We should absolutely talk with government, but at a certain level. And I think that's the point that you brought up. There's a diplomatic process that's involved because you don't want to give legitimacy. Because if we do ever get to that point that you're saying, God forbid, that there's a conflict, we've just legitimized, legitimized our enemy and our adversary. Right. No, we've, we've 
done everything possible to try to stop it from occurring with with a person who controls a huge military so by impoverishing. You can do people. that. You can do that. Though, we tried to give him. We gave him a chance. The other, the other point is that D Donald Trump, uh, in his heart, believes that his cult of personality, his personality, oh, yeah, is going to be able to cut through and make any deal, whether it's a real estate deal in New York or whether it's dealing with Putin or or, or Syria or or anybody else. But he did walk away. He did did walk, there's a, there's away. a huge benefit to walking away, and the people you know that that applauded him for walking away, uh, you know, are, were not One necessarily thing the that people I do that were closest point to out, him. And I think this is a very serious issue for us to contemplate. You brought up the satellite imagery and what our clandestine services might know. One thing that we have to appreciate is how much Trump has disparaged our national intelligence community and that if there was that case where he had to make the case for going to, into conflict to North Korea to protect the American people, would, pe would his base even believe him? Would they trust CIA images anymore or NSA intelligence when the, the president himself has undermined their the left, legitimacy so but, much? But Georgia, the, the, the left for the last 40 years yeah, has always questioned American intelligence, Absolutely. whether it's the FBI, the CIA. You, you folks well, think that, that, that all your phone calls are listened in on and, and they've disrupted your, your political process for 40 years. I mean, of course, it is, I think it's a logical thing for anyone to say, should an intelligence be analyzed? Does everything the CIA say, should it be believed? I don't think so. But, Bruce, there's a difference between being, um, you know, skeptical or questioning programs that involve, you know, LSD and kind of exotic, weird things and, and you know, tracking, monitoring your own people and the Nixonian misuse of the FBI. All, there's a difference between that and then just at the most spatial top level saying, oh, I talked to this guy Putin and he said, we're good. Oh, I talked to this guy Kim Jong-un and he says, they're not building any nuclear sites. I believe that. While there's actual photographic evidence and kind of empirical... But, what, no but what, the question is, what would his intelligence uh, supporters be saying? What would the leaders of the FBI's be saying? The, the top five people of the FBI, FBI have either been fired or kicked off. What does it say about them? What does it say about James Clapper? What does it say about oh John Brennan? Yeah. James Clapper is a liar. He lied he, to our He face. lied to Congress. He lied to the American people. Yes, he and, he's, and he's now uh, an analyst uh, you know, on television. Where's, where's the outrage for that? And by the way, that happened in response to a question from Ron Wyden, a great liberal from Oregon, who basically he lied to him when he said, no, he did, there, were, there was no plan or, or no program going on where the United States government was listening in on phone conversations and intercepting phone lines. Mm -hmm. He lied, or mail. But, no, but I think that's a great... So what you're getting at is there's a difference between this deception of, like, covering up information yeah. versus what the atmosphere is now, which is, I think if Trump came out and said, hey, the satellite imagery is fake news and manufactured, I think people would buy into it. And I well, think that's, uh, that's the difference, I think, in the Bolton debate. Bolton was on TV this morning. I happened to catch a little bit of the gas right. bag shows, and, and, <laughs> and he made it perfectly clear that those were commercial satellites. Yes, and that the particular sites they were looking at have several operations, mm -hmm. and it could be that this is simply a, a normal operation as opposed to one which is negative. I, and I, they they have a lot, and we have we look every day apparently with our much better satellites, and I assume that Bolton will be one who will be looking very carefully at these and giving the president good advice. Now let's do remember that it was the left who told George Bush, "You lied, people died." And what they lied about was what his intelligence told him. There were weapons right. well, of mass destruction in Iraq. Every single 
intelligence agency said that was the case. The French said it, the British said it, the Germans said it, and all of and and you attacked them. I think that story is a lot more a lot more complicated. Of course, it is what's because it's not a Well, side. what's complicated is that that administration had an agenda to enter that war, and they actually sought the intelligence to corroborate okay that. To so that's why, that's why we go down you, a rabbit hole. Just finish, okay. just yeah. one last thing. I, just one, one thing. Go, backing up a little bit, the, the really the biggest problem to me about what Trump's doing is that he has so thoroughly degraded trust in public institutions that have he predated has. him and will postdate him. And I mean, in my own life, I've interacted with people who just dismiss the FBI. Everything they do is just a lie to take down Trump, dismiss the CIA, dismiss all of these institutions that, in fact, have kept us safe for a very think, long time. How, how, do you, how do you defend the top, the top five people of the FBI? How do you possibly? I mean, do you want to go through each one by James one? James Comey. I think there is. Democrats I think there is. So the, the question initially was, would the American people even trust some of this imagery because of the deep distrust that Trump has supposedly sowed? I think the American people still have trust in the rank and file of FBI, CIA. I think the, the distrust is with the Washington, D.C. Yep. Port, part of that. And it was in my opinion, triggered in large part by Benghazi and having Susan Rice. I think that was the start of a modern day growing distrust with what the White House is talking to us about security and what's actually going on. And to your point, Susan Rice was then, uh, you know, obviously misled the American people on something very dramatic, serious and emotional, and then was still permitted to be on television shows as an expert source, even though she had lied. When we come back, we'll talk more about Susan Rice. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. To phone calls we go. Let's go to Omar listening to us on the Internet tonight. You've got a question, Omar. Go ahead. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Yes, hi. Hi. Um, so I just was following some of the discussions here on the primaries and Bernie's electability. Uh-huh. And I just had a few things to say about that. Sure. So, you know, I think the discussion here is happening in some kind of vacuum where you have, uh, you know, a normal president – um, who doesn't do abnormal things. But uh, on the other hand, what you really have is a 74-year-old man who only happens to be a few years younger than Bernie, uh, who is not even coherent, uh, whose mental stability has been questioned, who, according to White House sources, uh, you know, which has been reported in the New York Times, watches 8 to 10 hours of television every day about himself, strolls into the White House at 11 a.m., and then pretends to do whatever it is that he's doing, but what we clearly know is that he's more interested in tweeting and creating chaos and uh, insulting people than in actually governing. Um, he's obviously a complete failure. So, you know, when you talk about like, whether Bernie is electable or not based on his age 
or whether he will drive up the African-American vote, you know, you're, you're, the assumption is that you're running against a normal candidate, which you're clearly not. Um, so, you know, I think we, in terms of whether it's about defeating him, it doesn't really matter who the candidate is. Mm. Uh, it's really about the issues. And what you have in the, on the Republican side is a hardcore base of people who are very anti-immigrant, um, you know, and that's about 30, 38 to 40 percent of the electorate. Omar, the there's, there's, also, there's, there's, there's also, whether you describe them as anti-immigrant or not, which you just did, they also happen to disagree with something you just said, is that President Trump has had no successes. They think Donald Trump has had successes. Now, you don't agree with them on that. And so you dismiss them because you think they're wrong. But, you know, there's 62 million of them, and they, they like Donald Trump. The question is, are 62 million or more people going to come out again in 2020? That's the big question. And we're talking about, we're talking about the, the nuts and bolts of campaigns as well. How do you energize a campaign? Bernie Sanders knows yeah. how to energize a campaign. I mean, I'm not arguing, you know, against the age issue. I'm 74 myself, 74 as a kid. <laughs> but uh, uh, Are you going to run? Uh, no, I'm not going to run. No. I'd vote for you, Bruce. And I'm not going to even walk. I barely walk. <laughs> but go ahead. Back to you, Omar. Right. So I guess it depends on how you define his successes, right? So when it comes to the judges, there's very little that he has anything to do with that. That's really dependent on who's in control of the Senate. He sele- sir, the sir, he, he selects the members to be, to, to, to be federal judges. The Senate votes on him. He selected the people to be on the Supreme Court, and then the Senate votes on him. So don't say that the, the president has no input into the judges. He has a great deal of input into judges, and, and a lot of people in the country who like him a lot, they like his selection of judges a lot. I think, I think what Omar is saying, though, is he's taken that, those names from a list that's yeah, provided I mean, to him. He's not he actually... Came up with a list. Yeah. No, he didn't come yeah, up with a list. Federalist Society the Federalist Society list that was floating but, but, around. But, 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 nobody has said that. Are we to avoid input from people who know a lot about judges yeah, if the, they disagree with you. With yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, I think okay. the point that the caller is trying to make is that when you have a Republican president, regardless of who that Republican president yeah. is, the list that they'll be picking from is the Federalist Society. That's exactly list. right. But um, yeah, exactly. Which, but, but in terms of electability, Bernie Sanders, socialist, socialism, Venezuela. That's all it's going to take. Or Sweden, or Denmark. No, Sweden is not socialist. Sweden is capitalist with a large government. So Bernie calls himself a democratic socialist, right? Doesn't make that difference. I'm just saying there's a difference. Well, there is a difference because, especially, for example, when we talk about democratic socialism in Europe, we're actually talking more about center center left democratic policies here in the United States. So, again, this goes back to our conversation earlier. Sweden and Denmark are not socialist. Your caller brings up a good point, though, on the age issue, and that's something. Bernie should bring up on the on the campaign trail where if people bring up the age, you know, the guy that's sitting in the White House is of a similar age. And so um, I don't he's think of it's a similar be- age. But also, I will say, again, as someone who's 74 and he's not such 74, he has incredible energy. Yes, he does. And he doesn't need eight hours of sleep no. every night. But Go ahead, Bernie. Last. I'm sorry. Omar, last <laughs> word to you. Oh, it looks like yeah. Go ahead. Last word yes, to you. I am. Well, so one thing that I wanted to say is, you know, in terms of his successes, uh, you know, the, the judge's issue, I think, you know, you can give credit to a president who's actually engaged uh, in this process, but he is not engaged. He doesn't know anything, and he doesn't have any ideology. He doesn't really care. 
So you have Leo, you know, whatever his name is from the Federalist Society, meeting with Don McGahn, and they've hashed out this list. And sure, okay, maybe you give him one thing, which is the judges, which is really by happenstance. The but economy. he's not achieved anything else, even the one thing on the Tax thing that he promised. Mexico isn't paying for the wall. That's he true, but, 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 but Omar, I'm going to give you one more example, and then we're going to move on to, to another caller. And that is one thing that the president did based on, uh, on, on advice he got from uh, uh, his son-in-law, uh, Jared Kushner, is he recently he pushed for in Congress and he signed the most significant criminal justice reform legislation in the history of the country. Mm-hmm. It releases African Americans and minorities and everyone else that have, has been convicted uh, who, who, who fall, the, fall uh, through these guidelines, not f- meet these guidelines. No Democrat did it. Now, maybe Barack Obama started it. You're right. You make that point every week, Peter. <laughs> but one guy, one guy signed it. One guy pushed it over the goal line. And literally tens of thousands of people who spent their lives completely destroyed by the criminal justice system in the United States are either free now or on their way to freedom because of the First Step Act signed by Donald Trump. No Democrat did it. That's something else that's positive in addition to some of the others. We've got to say farewell to you. Our thanks to all of our guests this evening, Kristen McQuarrie of the Tribune, Mike Miller of DePaul University, Peter Hanna from Kent, Chicago, Kent, and Georgia Logothides uh, from The Cost. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Chicago. for what's right helping out when things go wrong seeking the truth and speaking our minds not just making records but breaking them leading the way behind the camera beyond the runway and on the silver screen not just making our mark but making a difference now that's a job for a girl scout girl scouts preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Debt. We can all get in a bit too deep. Members of the NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, can help you put debt in its place. 
credit cards took charge of my financial life. An NFCC credit counselor helped me get back in control. I took charge of my debt. Student loan debt followed me wherever I went. My NFCC financial advocate taught me all I needed to know. I mastered my student loan debt. We wanted to buy our first home, but weren't sure if we were mortgage ready. Our NFCC housing counselor helped us make a plan. We're on a path to our first home. NFCC member agencies serve all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Convenient, helpful, knowledgeable, nonprofit. Financial advocates there for you. We We put put debt in in its place. Be one of 5 million people to beat debt by 2020. Connect with an NFCC certified credit counselor at your local member agency today. Go to nfcc.org slash stop debt or call 877-410-6322. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, the experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv.